What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp, thanks for tuning in. This week on the show, we are talking about something you've heard me mention many a times. It is the reason the podcast started on and on, Uh, but it is anxiety. And we're not just talking about it because it's something I deal with, dealt with, etc. It's also the most prevalent mental health disorder in the world. Something like 300 million people with a diagnosable anxiety disorder. It's also a subject that, to be honest with you, has come through my inbox many times, meaning we've had plenty of authors reach out and want to talk about it on the show. And for the most part, I haven't. There's a lot of reasons behind that. But one is in my own journey, I'm just yet to find a lot of people who have great advice and solutions. But this one grabbed me a little differently. This week on the show, we have Dr. Luana Marquez. And first of all, her pedigree is incredible. She is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard. She is the founder and director of Community Psychiatry Pride at Massachusetts General Hospital. She's the former president of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America and the author of two critically acclaimed books, one called Almost Anxious, And then the new one, which we're here to discuss, which is called Bold Move, a three-step plan to transform anxiety into power. And that last part was the final straw where I said, you know what? I have to talk to Dr. Luana, which was the title of her book, Bold Move, a three-step plan to transform anxiety into power. I like the idea of taking something that is so often framed in a way that we should be ashamed of it and turning it into fuel for accomplishment. 
I'll never forget when Simon Sinek told me that the same physiological sensations happen when you feel anxious and when you feel excited. It is just the person who determines which one. I'll never forget when he told me that. And so this idea of taking that physiological feeling, whether it be butterflies in your stomach, dizziness, heart palpitations, etc., and recognizing, can I leverage this emotion to be more powerful? And then really transforming this idea of anxiety into, yes, an unpleasant experience, but perhaps not a psychological death sentence. And so that's what we try to cover on this show. We're going to get into it. I want to reiterate, if you're hearing this now, okay, August, whatever it is, September, October, email me. I am actively talking with our listeners, chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com. I'd love to talk to you on Zoom. If that's too much and you just don't want to, totally cool, right? I don't know if I'd want to talk to some weird guy on the other end of my headphones. I'll just send you a quick survey. I want to know about you, why you listen to the show, what else you listen to, so we can continue to make this show better. That's it. No sales pitch, nothing crazy, just friend to friend. Chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Let's get into it. Our interview with Dr. Luana Marquez about her new book, Bold Move, a three-step plan to transform anxiety into power. Enjoy. As those listening know, this is a topic near and dear to my heart, big part of my life and where the podcast came from. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with you about anxiety and about what we can do with it and about how we might leverage it to um, to actually accomplish things. But first, obviously, in the past 10 years, I think mental health has gotten a big boost. And so there's a lot of people writing about this. And I, I want to have you on specifically because I try to find people who I not only vibe with their their content, but I trust their background. And yours is pretty impressive. So I want to start there. I don't always start with background. But could you tell me a little bit about um, how you've gotten to this point and why this topic is rooted in what you've done for so long? Um, I'll go back to being a little girl first, and then I'll talk about um, the accomplishments. But, you know, writing this book, there's this moment, Chris, that I was writing about having asthma attacks. And I remember vividly, I grew up in Brazil, poor with a single mother. And I remember my mom rushing to school. She'd be calling to take me to the hospital because I was having this horrific asthma attacks. And, you know, it's a public hospital, it's Brazil. And, and so the memory is very clear. But as I was writing the book and reflecting on this, the chronology out of suddenly like woke me up. And I called my mom and I said, listen, I was having panic attacks, not asthma attacks. And, and my mom goes, what it makes you say that? Like, what's a panic attack? Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, yep. well. And what made me say is, you know, today as associate professor at Harvard Medical School, studying anxiety and treating for 20 years, what I know I didn't know back then and what I knew back then is I just couldn't breathe. And this asthma attacks always happened the day after my father and my mother had horrific domestic violence incidents. So as an adult, very likely what I was having is panic attacks because once my dad left, I've never had an asthma attack ever again. Wow. Really? Ever. And so, you know, it took me 20 years as a psychologist, a researcher here in the U.S. to like put two and two together. 
And that's really why I decided to write Bold Moves. It's this combination of my personal trajectory from poverty to Harvard, my clinical ability to get people unstuck, including panic, and meeting together to say, I think all of us can do it, the right set of skills. Does that help as an introduction? It does. And I, there's, I, I want to go into the formal here in a moment, but given that panic attacks are the things that set me off on my journey, and uh, I've still had them as recently as just about, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago, I have two questions for you. Number one, in my experience, they're not something that is necessarily situationally specific to an extent. Mm -hmm. And so when you said, you know, once your dad moved out, they kind of went away. Is that normal that they kind of just vanish when the trigger, if you will, vanishes? So there are two kinds of panic attacks. One okay. that all of us talk about a lot, which is the uncued panic attacks. They come out of the blue. You're sitting. There's nothing necessarily that triggered it. And out of suddenly, you feel like you're having a heart attack, right? The other one, it's a cued panic attack. Now, it can be killed by a situation like this. It can be killed by worry. I've seen people sit and worry and worry and worry. Out of sudden, they're in a panic attack. Right. And, and, and so there's this distinction in the literature that we separate them. The uncued one, I think for me, what happened is I was safe. My body was no longer in a state of fight or flight. And I wasn't in a trajectory, I think, to develop panic disorder necessarily. Right. And so it was, I think, a biological escalation of my brain just saying, you're unsafe. Like, how, how do you say that you're unsafe? In a country that we didn't think domestic violence was wrong, in a country that nobody understood what mental health was. So, and now, you said I could nerd out, so oh, I will. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and now we have literature that shows that within Latino communities in particular, we're more likely to complain of headaches, stomach aches, pains when we're actually having anxiety compared to the majority, that the culture doesn't have the vocabulary. And so that's why I came to that conclusion couple of things there. One is you mentioned you didn't have the kind of the ingredients to turn into panic disorder. Could you explain the difference between having panic attacks, reaching panic disorder and what you think leads to that? What, what, you know, causes somebody to go to the disorder where somebody else can just have the attacks? A lot of people actually will have a panic attack in their lives. And, you know, and just to make sure we're all on the same page, is the host of symptoms that come really fast, difficulty breathing, all of those things like heart pounding, et cetera. And they peak within seconds to minutes, right? Then what we know from the literature is how you interpret that sensation and what you do with it is more likely to lead to panic disorder or not. If the interpretation of the sensation is something is bad, I can't handle this, I can't be in a situation like this, then what happens, and you know, I talk a ton about this concept in the book, is that we start to avoid anything related to the sensation. You stop drinking coffee, you don't have sex, you don't go to the gym, you have safety blankets. And so then what does your brain learn? This panic sensation is a problem, I must avoid it. And now your brain is going to basically react to the little things. I've had people that, you know, stop drinking coffee and then just they smell coffee. They're like, well, my heart pounded. And now what if I get anxious? And if I get anxious, I can have a heart attack. And so it's really the interpretation of physiology is one of the reasons we get stuck. The other one is also, of course, genetics and historically. 
right? For example, if you grew up in a house that there's a lot of anxiety, you're more likely to have an anxiety disorder. And now if you have this experience, you're more likely to interpret it negatively. So I don't think it's one thing. Okay. But the main difference, Chris, is how you interpret the physiology. Then now I got to push on this because Please. you've had them, I've had them, a lot of people listen to have had panic attacks. How does anybody interpret that as anything other than I'm dying and this is the worst sensation ever and I don't want to experience it ever again? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how anybody could experience it differently. Well, I think the first time you have it, it's impossible. If you don't know what it is right. and it's the first time you had it, I'm with you. It's right. pure physiology. You think you're like you're dying. You're going to the emergency room. It's yep. the worst thing ever. I agreed with you. From that to always interpreting that way, it's a bit of a decision. In fact, one of the best treatments for panic disorder is called interceptive exposure. Have you heard of this? No. So interceptive exposure is a protocol that is drawn on cognitive behavior therapy. But the idea is to expose people to the things that they are afraid the most, which is physiology. Okay, so if I'm treating you for panic disorder, I'm going to do, imagine, what's the worst symptom for you, Chris? Like, what is the one that bothers you the most? It's um, it's like a fear of passing out. It's like a dizziness type kind of derealization, depersonalization type thing. It's hard to explain. Perfect. No, yeah. I actually got it completely. Okay, yeah. So what I, so every time that happens, okay, your brain, your limbic system is basically hearing there's a lion. Something bad is about to happen. Your thinking brain goes, heart attack, I'm going to pass out, I'm going, like, and nobody's going to find me, right? Well, we're going to test that hypothesis by forcing the symptoms in a safe way. And so if you're in my office, I'll have you spin in a chair, I'd have you get up really fast, stare at a light, and try to read it at the same time, and I'd get you to feel all the sensations. Now, this is the trick. Then what I'd ask you to do is nothing. I'd say, Chris... We're just going to describe. And you'd say to me, Luana, I feel dizzy. The room is spinning. I think I'm going to faint. And I'd stand next to you. And we do this again and again and again. And once you do it a few times, what your brain goes is like, oh, I didn't faint. Oh, I, that dizziness doesn't mean the worst case. And I've seen people get better, to be realistic with you, in five sessions just with interceptive exposure. This episode is brought to you by Hims. We don't want to admit it, but 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many health problems, no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it. That's why you need to check out Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Hims offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you, for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. You can even manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash smart. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash smart for your personalized treatment options. One last time, hymns.com slash smart.
Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscriptions plan. I could see that, and, and I didn't know that's what it's called. I've heard of it as just exposure therapy, I think, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So I've never had any like real formal, I've never really done anything with it. With it, I've just considered it this grin and bear it type thing. And every five to seven years when it rears its ugly head, it'll like throw my life in shambles for a month and then I'll be back. And I, that's probably not the best way to go about it. But a lot of it is because the things that I read or the things I hear like this, I go, I don't know, there's, there's parts missing to that. And I'll give you an example. Um, so for me, it's not just the physical sensation, because if the physical sensation happens in my house, I'm fine, right? It's Correct. the setting also. It's 100%. always, it's a professional setting. It's other people around. It's, you know, a judgment type thing. It's all of those combined. So mm-hmm. can you replicate that or how would you? Yeah, great. I love that you're adding complexity because it's not as simple. You're absolutely right. That's why in cognitive behavior therapy, we have different kinds of exposure, right? This one is just to get somebody to even get out of their house. Okay. Right? And then we have what's called imaginal and real life exposure. So three types, one to your physiology, one to real life stuff, and the other one imaginal. So the imaginal could be having you visualize as you're spinning that you're walking into a professional meeting to give a presentation, for example, right? Or I've done this before. People think I'm cruel, but I really mean to get people better. That's why I do it. I've had somebody um, go into a bathroom before a presentation and just spin around in a private bathroom so they can induce some of the sensations, right? And then they walk out five minutes, 10 minutes. We practice before. Right. And so it's not throwing somebody in the deep end is desensitizing them so that they can get there. They can be a little dizzy and still perform. Yeah. Yeah. And learn that the worst case scenario would not happen. I fundamentally do believe that that is. And and by the way, for those listening, we're not going to spend an hour on panic disorder. It's just where we started. (laughs) And it's one that's. But um, I remember last job I had, I, I did a lot of public speaking, basically three a week. I mean, like over a hundred a year. And I think a panic type issue struck early on. And I remember just saying, well, I'm not stopping. Like I was like, fine, if this is what's going to happen, because I enjoyed the job, it was one of the first I enjoyed. So I was like, if, if I pass out on my face in front of 50 or hundred, 200, 500 people, then maybe I'll worry about it. But until that happens, I'm not stopping. And I remember about two weeks were uncomfortable. And then the next five years were completely fine. That's, that's it. And see, you made a decision to shift your perspective. And then you made a decision to approach instead of avoid. Yeah. And that combination is killer. Yeah. Right? Because if you didn't choose your perspective and just approach, then you're white knuckling it. Yeah. And you, you didn't. You did something brilliant. You shifted and you approached. And it, well, and it was more like a, that grin and bear it thing. But I feel like it's hard to do that. And that's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on which is this idea of anxiety in general, right? People listening might not identify with panic, but most people really deal with, to some extent, stress, anxiety in their life at different times. And I find that most just do one of three things. They either try to avoid the things that cause it. 
they try to uh, medicate, typically self-medicate, or they try to just grin and bear it and push through. That's my experience. And I, I want to know from your experience, do you think there's a better way to get through it? Those anxious moments in your life, do you, do you think we can actually do it in a way that is productive? I don't think I'd have written the book if I didn't really okay. be, yeah. be productive, right? Yeah. But um, listen, I, I grew up as an anxious person, um, and this is what I think. I think that most of us will avoid one way or another, right? The way you describe this to me, there are all different flavors of avoidance. Some of us avoid by reacting. We go towards it somehow. Some of us retreat the medication, and some of us just remain. We're stuck. We're frozen in place. Right. But most of us, what we do is we teach our brain that anxiety is bad and that we need to avoid somehow. And the problem is avoidance feeds anxiety. Like every time we avoid, what we learn is that anxiety is bad and we can't tolerate it. And so to really be able to sort of transform that anxiety into power, you have to create a plan. Right. So, for example, I'm the kind of person that when I avoid, when I'm anxious, I tend to react to avoid. What does that mean? Well, imagine I get an email that pisses me off. Okay. I'm the kind of person that types the response really fast and I'm going to tell you exactly how it is. Right. But the problem is, every time in my life, when I press send to that email, I feel momentarily better because avoidance always wins, but then I have a lot to clean up because I'm not coming from my thinking brain. I'm not being um, respectful. I'm just reacting to avoid one thing and one thing only, my discomfort related to that email, right? Instead of doing that, how do I, I am able to manage, you know, I today, if I get an email that upsets me, I literally have to walk away for a second. I use what's called opposite action. Instead of reacting, I'm going to go away from it, not to avoid it, but to tolerate my discomfort enough so that I can have my thinking brain on and I can respond. Okay, walk me through. There's a couple concepts there that on the surface make total sense, easy peasy. But I think especially we're going to, again, mention your background, but like Harvard and all this stuff, I want the details. So you mentioned to tolerate it. So I want to first ask, what's the purpose in tolerating that, in dealing with whatever that emotion is? Discomfort, right, triggers our fight, flight, or freeze. Any kind. As soon as the brain senses any potential danger, that from the modern life is discomfort, we on fight, flight, or freeze. And if we avoid then we end up actually feeding that discomfort versus doing what biologically what we are wired to do, which is to ride our emotions up and down. Let me put this in an example. If you are hiking with somebody and you thought there was a lion there and you ran to safety, once you are safe, or let's do this a modern example, you're crossing the street with your kid and your kid rushes ahead of you and there's an ambulance bearing down. Once you're safe with your kid in your arms, you don't just immediately feel better. It takes time for physiology to come down. So the purpose of tolerating discomfort is teaching your brain that there is no lying. You're allowing the general biology to take course versus the opposite, which is the avoidance. You get the quick fix. You come home, you have a glass of wine, you feel fantastic, but you're not learning to manage your emotions. You're running from them. The, the reason I'm pausing here and I want to spend time on it is because I just realized something recently, which is, so we were talking about, I have a, a three day old baby at this moment. And the second he was born, I just like started bawling. It was like an awful uh, labor. 
And later, you know, I'm sitting in the hotel room, just sit or in the hospital room, just sitting there. And I started journaling a little bit. And I realized, you know, people had asked, oh, are you ready for the baby? Are you this? Are you that? And I was like, it's fine. It's my third kid. Like, it's not even a thing. And then the day after I realized, I don't think I had processed at all what this new human was going to do. And here's what's crazy about that. I believe myself to be a fairly introspective, intelligent uh, individual. I don't even realize when I'm blocking things out, when I'm not allowing myself to feel things or, or internalize. How much of this is just unconscious? How much of this pushing things off or avoiding is just habitual to where we don't even realize it? I certainly think, well, I'm going to say one thing before I answer your question, which is this, you are very introspective, right? Because you're able to sit there and journal and understand that you're blocking it. After the fact. (laughs) Well, but sometimes we are in survival mode and I imagine getting ready for a third kid, you're trying to put everything in order to have that third kid. Exactly. Your your brain basically said to you, you know, the, the playbook here, you don't have to spend time here, right? And so then you're sort of doing the right thing. It's just a kid is a kid and it's different than the first two kids. And so then there's this emotional load, right? But I'll I'll answer your question, which is some of this, I think, is automatic pilot. That somehow we grew up and we start doing it and we avoid to survive. And that's just how we do it, right? Is it unconscious? I, I don't know, because I think, at least in my experience, um, people know when they're stuck. They may not know immediately, but they sort of can tell me that they are doing something to try to make themselves feel better. Now, they may not call it avoidance, but there, there is a level of insight there. But to your point, which is very insightful, once we get on that treadmill, we don't want to see reality any other way. It's right. like the only way to survive is to avoid. Right. And you know, I'll give you an example. Um, now, a friend of mine is in the middle of a divorce. He's finally divorced. And I was just meeting with him. And he said, she said to me, well, if she let me move back in the basement, that would be really good. And I was like, you just signed divorce papers. He's like, well, but you know, it would be great because we could help. They have kids. I could help with a kid. And I was like, do you understand your level of avoidance? Uh, but didn't you see, didn't like, even want to address the, the reality of the situation. And that's, I think, how, to your point of unconscious, I think people are so afraid to face reality that they don't look, right? They just don't look. That's more in line with what I mean. And I think there's enough things we can distract ourselves with. And I'm not even talking social media and all that. I mean everything. I mean busyness. I mean accomplishment. I mean task orientation. All of that. A positive way, a seemingly positive way to get the same result, which is avoidance, which doesn't do us any good. That is such an important point. You know, some of us who are high functioning, our best flavor procrastination of avoidance is not procrastination. We do more and more and more and more to not feel. We do more and more to prove that we are enough. We do more and more to fit in. Even when we're hitting a wall, even when we know that we're neglecting our family or our physical body, we just push ahead. That's plain old avoidance. Right. So let's, we, we talked about avoidance. What is so bad about it? Walk me through from your scientific perspective. If it's not conscious, are we still feeling it? 
So let me define psychological avoidance for that okay. for us, the way yeah. I think about it. Yeah. Okay. It's anything that we do or don't do, but that immediately make us feel better. So we have discomfort and we're going to do something to feel better. And that something is associated with a long-term negative price tag. Okay. So let me, let me clarify. You come home and you have a glass of wine because you had a really bad day. That is not a problem. You come home, you have three glasses of wine every day to actually manage your life. Now we have a slippery slope, right? You're in a relationship and you really care about that person. But every time they bring up something you don't like, you avoid that conflict and you withdraw and you withdraw. Price tag at a minimal, more conflict, usually separation, divorce, and ending. So to your answer, to answer your question, what makes psychological avoidance a problem is the price tag. It gives you a quick fix, but long term, it just keeps you stuck. That is extremely helpful. So avoidance in the term of when we start to feel it, we do something to negate that feeling. And that in and of itself isn't a bad thing. Correct. That's probably human nature, I would imagine biologically driven our body is meant to walk away from discomfort that's how we protect ourselves okay and so it's not you're not saying be masochistic sit and just say all right i'm going to give myself the 30 minutes to just feel terrible today or whatever and maybe you need to but the point is what do you do with that stimulus you get that emotion and then what action are you going to take to change that feeling state that's exactly right. And if your actions or even inactions in times of conflict, for example, walking away, only lead to more of the negative, right? Again, I go back to this price tag, which is individual to each person. I'll give you an example that might illustrate for people. Growing up, as I said, it was really tough. And so the way I managed my emotions was by eating cookies. I wasn't bulimic. I wasn't throwing up. But if I had a really bad day, I remember getting some cookies, laying in my mom's bed, watching cartoons, and that just made me feel so much better. Well, you fast forward in my entire life, I fought obesity because I hadn't learned that I could actually have a bad day without eating. As you were going through that story, I thought the ending was going to be, and it was fine because it's just cookies. So I managed to find a good outlet or a good way to deal with discomfort. But to your point, I think that's the slippery slope is it's all, it's really hard to manage it in a certain way, maybe an external way that doesn't lead to negative consequences. Yeah. So avoidance is about why we do something, not what we do. And I think okay. that's the distinction people have trouble. My husband, if he, he loves cookies, so he'd get, he'd be working on the second floor, come down, have two or three cookies, not even think about it. It has no correlation to his level of stress, his desire. To, he loves sweet. He's as skinny as he gets. He can have 10 cookies. For him, it's just a source of pleasure. Right. For me, it was a way to numb the strong emotions and that numbness got me stuck. And so as an adult, I have to be thoughtful. I have to go to the gym. I have to because my body early on just didn't know that I could have emotions, period. Right. I want to ask you, the, the term gets thrown around a lot. How do you define anxiety and how do you like to think about it? It does get thrown out a lot. So I think about anxiety in the components of anxiety. And the reason I, I like to think about the components is because I think people get stuck in different parts. So we, you and I started this conversation by talking about panic. 
right? And in panic, we're talking about the physiology of anxiety. We're talking about that discomfort in your body. And for some of us, that is the worst part of anxiety. For some of us, we get stuck on the thinking part of anxiety. So these are the people that worry about worries. The what if, um, what if this happens, I can't handle it. Right, there's this anticipation of the worst case scenario. And for some people, anxiety shows up as just plain old behavior avoidance. I won't do anything that makes me feel uncomfortable. You know, heights, um, flying, you name it. And, and so I think about anxiety as the, the relationship between thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. And it's at the core of cognitive behavior therapy, right? Something happens to your point, a situation, a stimulus, you're going to feel something in your body. It's going to affect what you say to yourself and what you do. And you get stuck in anxiety when you start to feed each other. So when you say things like, oh, my heart's pounding, I'm going to have a heart attack. Oh my God, what do I do now? I need to call a doctor, call a doctor. They don't answer. It's pounding more. And then that's the experience of anxiety in my mind. Does that paint a better color? It, it paints it so well that I have to go back and look at the painting again. Tell me the thing <laughs> you said. And I mean, if you're listening, you can just rewind, but we'll go deeper. You said it's the relationship between thoughts, feelings, and behavior? Is that what you said? Yeah. I call it the thoughts, emotions, and behavior cycle, the tab cycle. Okay. And so it's the relationship between a situation happening and our internal experience of what we say to ourselves, how we feel, and what we do. And they ping pong. That's the, the trick, right? Your heart's pounding. You, I might say, okay, I'm just a little excited. You might say, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. And that interpretation is going to lead to the more heart pound or not. And it's going to affect what you, we do. Okay. And, and the reason I was asking is because people who listen know this. I do leadership development and there's a million models that talk about exactly what you're talking about, but I've never, for some reason, thought about it in specifically related to anxiety. So our thoughts lead to emotions, our emotions lead to behaviors, our behaviors give us our results. And then those results kind of reinforce the thoughts, right? But mm -hmm. the thing I've always struggled with is those thoughts become such a part of you that they don't feel changeable anymore. They don't feel like you can do anything about them. I remember talking to a guest on the show who is also a therapist and he was like, well, if you work on those thoughts, et cetera. And I said, they don't even feel separate from me because I've been doing them for so long. Can you actually change them? Like, do you, this is the science that you can actually change your kind of instantaneous response to thoughts and things like that. If you're overweight and you eat healthy and you go to the gym, can you lose weight? Sure. So it's the same answer. It's the kind of exercise that you need to do for your brain. So if you think about your brain as an organ that can be exercise, then we need to understand what's happening. The reason that thoughts feel like you is because the brain is designed to minimize dissonance. Dissonance being when two things are different and it wants to predict what you know, right? In my case, if my, in my belief growing up is that I, I'm not enough. So anytime I would enter a situation, it would trigger that belief and would wanna confirm it. I'll give you an example. I got a paper accepted to a high impact journal and my brain, instead of saying, awesome, said, oh, it only got accepted because the co-authors are really smart. I'm not smart, right? That maintains I'm not smart enough. I'm not enough. And so the first piece is we need to even understand that our brain is just trying to do confirmation bias, right? And that's why the thoughts feel like you because you've had them your whole life. But let's be very fair. Thoughts are not facts. Right. 
right? And so if we separate them from ourselves, then can we change them? Yes, but you have to exercise your brain to change them. It's not like a flip of a switch or replacing them. You have to really work to change the mechanism that is predicting those thoughts. This topic is so complex and so difficult. Like if you struggle with it, you know how just all encompassing it can be. And so sometimes it's frustrating and I've done it. You read a book, you go to a therapist, whatever, and they say, okay, let's write down what's your thought. Okay. What's the proof behind that? Okay. Mm -hmm. Has it happened before? And I go, yeah, yeah. Logically, I know what you're saying, but that mm -hmm. doesn't fix the fact that it's still happening in my brain. And then I just get frustrated. And I imagine yeah. a lot of people have that experience. Yeah. So your therapist was failing to tell you that you should not believe it right away. Mm. That's the first misnomer about cognitive behavior therapy is that you exercise by doing that exercise and then somehow it's going to change. We're talking about a pattern of believing that thought your whole life. It is not going to change overnight. You can go to the gym, you know, twice this week, 10 times this week. You're not going to lose the 50 pounds. Like it's just so the first thing I say to people is if you choose to engage with this, the first thing you're going to have is a lot of frustration because you're not going to believe it. It's going to create more irritation and, and you're going to get annoyed, right? But this is why I learned this, Chris, from my grandmother. When I got to graduate school and they were teaching me cognitive restructure, which is the term behind this, I was like, oh, my grandmother used to do this, right? I'd get really anxious and frustrated. And she'd say to me, is there another way to see the situation? And at 15, I'd be like, no. And she's like, okay, here are five ways to see the situation. If you see it this way, what is the outcome? If you see it this way, what's the outcome? If you see it this way. So today... When I get anxious, and I do, and my brain jumps to, I'm stupid, people are gonna hate me. I go, okay, what are my five other conclusions? And my brain comes up with this conclusion so fast that then I go, okay, this is the one. This I, is the I, one I, that, that I'm choosing? That's the one that to me is the one that's most reasonable, the most balanced, right? Not the happiest one, but you know, for example, if I had a thought, Chris is mad at me right now. Mm -hmm. I didn't, mm -hmm. but imagine I sure. had. Sure. Okay. One, he could be mad at me. Two, he could be annoyed at me. Three, he has a three-year-old, uh, three-day-old at home, so he's a little tired. Fourth, I have no clue. Let me ask him. And see, my brain will do that in milliseconds. And then you, you will say which one of those is likely the case. I is that, or or what will you I, do from I there? I evaluate them very quickly. If I was in a conversation okay. with you, I might I might actually say, "Hey, Chris." Did I say something that upset you? Right. I will check on data behind if I can't. If I can't, I look at the competing hypothesis and try to get to a more balanced belief. Balanced? Explain that. What do you, I'll get to where I'm going, and I think those listening are probably following along. When you say, I'll try to get to a more balanced belief, what does that mean to you? So to me, it means that I look at the competing hypothesis, I look at the data behind them, and I try to alter my interpretation so it's not consistent with my own previous belief so that I'm not just confirming my, confirming my own fears. Okay. It takes a level of insight for sure. But if we agree that our brain's trying to confirm whatever our view of the world is, then, and that's the piece of path of least resistant, I try to go against that path a little bit to see if there is another way to see the world. I get that. And I, I think this gets back to that logical dissonance, meaning like in the example you gave, Chris probably isn't mad at me. The most logical is this. However, the most dangerous, the most uncomfortable, the one that I want to occur the least is option A. And so then kind of just 
my logic goes, okay, then ruminate on that one mm -hmm. because the other ones are less dangerous, mm -hmm. but that one is the, the worst potential outcome. So then that just stays in my psyche, mm -hmm. which fuels the anxiety. Exactly. So how do you separate is what I'm, I guess what I'm asking. But see, you just illustrated so beautiful for all of us, how your brain is being trained to ruminate about the most dangerous thing, because that's the one that scares you the most. Versus my brain is going to try to go away from that because very likely is either not true or not helpful, right? And so I'm feeding a monster for no good reason. But I can see it. it, it and, and I say one more thing. The reason likely you get stuck on the thinking is a lot of highly intellectual people hate cognitive therapy because they can see the logic so fast that they don't even stop to do the process behind it. Yes, that is my experience every time I've tried yeah. it. So, and, and so then it's like, well, I see that already. You're telling me something I see versus, okay, this is where I mean by exercise. What we know scientifically is if you actually write down your thoughts, you are activating your prefrontal cortex, which has an inverse relationship to amygdala, right? So when one is on, the other one is offline and vice versa. And so by writing it down and challenging it, you're actually able to lead to be able to eventually change the way you think because you're not thinking through fear anymore. But a lot of very intellectual people hate this process. That's why it's better for them to do the other approach to either literally whenever they're fearful to do what you did. That's why it worked so well. You said, okay, if it's going to be panic, it's going to be panic. I'm going to do this no matter what. I'm not going to quit this job. That's the second skill in my book, approach, not avoid. Right? We've been talking about shift, which is the first one. And for highly intellectual people, approach, not avoid always works a lot easier because they can muscle through the anxiety versus thinking through the anxiety. I'm glad we got here <laughs> just because, you know, these are th questions I've had for a long time and it makes complete sense. I'm also thinking through it. My oldest, I can, he's eight and I can already tell he's got a little bit of this anxiety stuff going on. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned this idea of like trying to predict the future and, and all of that. What can we do either for ourselves or as parents when we have somebody who's not an adult? So we can't have this conversation with mm -hmm. them, but we recognize that they're doing this. They're seeing worst case scenarios. They're fearful of what could happen or more often what I see is they are trying to anticipate the future. Yeah. yeah so you can't have this level of conversation, but you can have a bite size of this. And so... I can tell you, for my five-year-old, we talk about the parts of the brain. And so we talk about the, I literally point to the front. I said, this is our thinking brain. Then when we're in our thinking brain, we do math, uh, we do science, we can do this. Here's the part of their brain that is when you're throwing yourself on the floor, when you want to yell, when you feel love, where you're excited, right? And he literally said to me the other day, he was really angry, screaming, and he's like, it's like, I'm on my emotional brain. You can't get me out. And I looked at him and I said, you're right. So then I valued, I can't get you out, right? You can get yourself out. And, and we have like a little list of things that he can do. If he's hangry, he can do this, right? All of this just says the principles for kids is teaching them to label emotions. So kids can have different types of emotions, have depth of emotions. And then as an adult, our job is to be able to sort of help them regulate it, right? So if your kid is predicting the worst case scenario, it's okay to say, so what makes you think that's going to happen? And if that happens, 
how do we handle that together? Like have them actually talk about it, right? And, and then don't fix it. And that's the hard part as a parent. Don't go in and say, well, if this happens and I'm going to do this, this, and this. Says, okay, what could we do? See where they are. Bring curiosity and try to understand how is their little brain predicting this? What is the connection it's making? Because you're going to see there's something in their logic that's not going to make sense, especially if you're feeling okay. And then you sort of help them connect that logic slowly. I want to ask you, we've specifically in your book, you talk about the three skills and we've covered two of them. So shift, which is that mindset perspective mm -hmm. approach, which is, and if I'm wrong, you can let me know, but is kind of go after it, go do it. And the third one is a line. Tell me about a line and how that works. So a line to me, well, it's what you did by your choice of continuing to stay in doing your job in the presentations and the public speaking, despite of the anxiety, right? You said something that was caught my attention, which is I did like, it was the best job you ever had and you loved it. And so there's something in that job that you value tremendously that made you override your anxiety and align your actions with that particular value. Right? And that's at the core of a line is, can we live a life that's values driven so that every day we're aligning actions with value, which is opposite to an emotion driven life where emotions are dictating what we do. So in that case, I'm using that example because you could have had anxiety tell you to avoid, you could have canceled the presentations, you could have done all sorts of things that would got you stuck versus a values-driven life leads to less anxiety, more satisfaction. We just know scientifically we thrive. It's like it's clean fuel. Like it's a good way of living. Yeah. And I know you talk about that part in your book and I'm always drawn to this because I, I, I fundamentally believe in the idea of defining your values, living by them, making decisions by them. As I went through a number of exercises to do that myself, I found it difficult. I found it difficult to identify the order of values, the importance, especially when you have somewhat conflicting ones, yeah. meaning like personal and professional uh, accomplishment, for example. Mm -hmm. And I know you talk about how acceptance and commitment therapy can help you with that. For those listening, if they want to work on their values, what skills or tools can you provide that help us do that? It is rather difficult. I have to say um, myself after doing this for 20 years, it wasn't until I had a major transition that I personally, so I, I had helped countless people, but I personally understood the power of aligning values with action. And they skilled that, the, the, the um, technique I use for myself that I find to be the most powerful one is to lean towards your pain. So whatever it is that is hurting for you, Right? Is it the relationship? Is it the job? Is it a, but think about a specific situation that's causing you emotional pain. And then ask yourself, what would I have to not care about for this not to hurt? In other words, what is so important for me here that I care so much that is violating that value? Behind pain really only exists emotionally because it's violating a core value usually. Right. If if you cross the street, Chris, and somebody says something rude to you that you've never seen before, hey, you look ugly. You just look at that person and go, what? Right. <laughs> but if your wife says to you, I'm really upset at you and we need to talk, that is no longer just a comment. Right. There's something about your relationship with that person that matters tremendously that now is a threat. 
And, and that's usually how I find values is like leaning towards the pain and asking myself, lean towards the pain and say, why is it painful? Yeah. What about that? Like, because that means that's something I care about. I care about. And what is that something that I care about? Right. And then once you get there, then you can say, okay, how do I then align my life that's more in line with this instead of paying so that I can live a better life? If I was listening right now, what I would be thinking is, this sounds great. However, in today's world, oftentimes it's really hard to live the kind of life we want to live and align it to our values. Simply because, for example, in a capitalist society where the primary goal is to make money, oftentimes you don't do so through a values-driven approach. Some very rare companies and people, but any tips on how to better align our values to our work? And the reason I also ask is because I imagine that would also lower stress and anxiety levels. Significantly. Um, yeah. So I think you're right that it's hard to do. I don't know if it's impossible to do is that culture tells us the only way to make money and to be successful is to just have ambition and go do it and do more of it. And without actually understanding why we're doing it. Right. But if you look at some of the best people in the business world, let's look at Simon Sinek's um, Golden Circle. Right. Yeah. What is he talking about? Starting with why. Why for human beings are values. Right. Those yep. are the whys. Yep. And so yep. I think the trick is this, is not to enter this conversation with a black and white kind of vision and think about, you know, ambition. I'm just going to use ambition. We tend to think about ambition at work only, right? How could I be ambitious at home as well? What would that look like if I brought that value into my relationships? Does it mean that I create space for dinners with my family? Does it mean like, how do I think about that concept and in action and, and don't divide the components of your life? I think that's part of where we get stuck is that we separate values per domain and then we don't, don't allow them to touch a little bit. Right. I could see that. Yeah. And then I, I think it's being creative. For example, if you're in corporate America and a company has X amount of values, what are the ones with your value that align with that company? I hope that there's some. And how do you make your job description fit a little more of that common denominator value? Now, all of us are going to have a bit of a shit pile. I'm not suggesting it's yeah. not there. <laughs> it just has to be smaller than the pile that brings us joy. It has to be smaller than the stuff that allows us to thrive. Otherwise, eventually, that avoidance and the price tag is going to be tremendous. Yeah, that price tag. How much of a role do you think these stressors, the things we've been talking about, play in burnout and in this epidemic of, of burnout? I mean, we just went through the quiet quitting or whatever it was called. <laughs> but, you know, how much of this idea of avoiding our values and our feelings is leading to these struggles we're seeing in the workplace? Yeah. So I think since the pandemic, the world has had a bit of value awakening. I don't think we're talking about it enough, but there was a specific playbook about work that existed before the pandemic. If you did X, you get Y, and this is what you could do, and this is what you can do. You can't work from home if you work in finances, for example. That was a yes or no. I worked at a hospital that the hospital was like, nope, nobody can work from home. You work. Out. And so there was a playbook that was value-driven by corporations, and people played along. Then the pandemic hit, 
And then you had to sort of like look at your life and there was a threat with the pandemic, right? To your safety, to the ones that you love. And so there's a fear component and then a shift on like, what do I care about? Because you never got to even ask it because you didn't get a chance to, right? The playbook suggests you had to be at work nine to five. That's what you did. And now you can't work from home. Wait a minute. I can have lunch with my family. Wait a minute. I actually need to exercise and I can do that. Wait a minute. And so there's this value shift that happened by actions. So it was like actions to value, not value to action. The actions changed. You started to notice what you care about. And now we're in this post-pandemic. And I think the science, the, the quitting was the sense of like, if you're going to put me in that box again, I'm not doing it anymore. I don't think people know to say it's because my values are violated, but like something doesn't fit. And so people are changing careers, they're changing jobs, they are. And, and I believe we're in the beginning of a value realignment that people are thinking, how do I transition better to create a life that I'm not paying price on anymore? You just reiterated your own thesis, which I love which is this idea of we can find values by finding where we feel pain and asking why. And that's also what you're talking about here, right? If we are going along in our lives and our professional lives and then the pandemic hits, so we're forced to a different behavior. And then as the pandemic lifts, for example, our behavior shifts back and we notice pain, we can say, why is that? So that happens for a lot of people to your point. Why do I hate commuting now? Well, you probably always did. You just figured out a way to avoid it or you know, why is this job or this boss or this whatever not working? That's an interesting kind of uh, working backwards into that. That's exactly I can right. see that being a skill or a mm -hmm. tactic. I, I am writing a, a third book on transitions and values just for that reason. See that? Look, and I didn't even know that. I'm just reading your mind. I have to ask you one more question. Um, it's kind of a summation of... I just want to ask you because of your background and because of how much work you've done in this, we are talking about you know, thoughts lead to emotions, which lead to behavior and lead to results. What are the top three things you would recommend doing if somebody wants to change the results they're getting in any aspect of their life? Yeah. So the first one is identify avoidance. What's your pattern of avoidance, right? Do you react? Do you retreat? Do you remain? Once you know your flavor, if you're stuck on thinking, shift your perspective. If you're stuck on behavior, approach not avoid. And if you're plain just stuck, things are not working, design a value-driven plan. Really look at your values to shift the whole landscape. And that to me is the three entryways for you to be able to really transform anxiety into power. Well, and that right there is the summary, I would say, for your book. So bold move, a three-step plan to transform anxiety into power. And I like turn it into power because I internalize it as you can leverage all the energy that is behind anxiety, which there is a lot to actually accomplish more than normal. That's how I decided to interpret it. Love it. it. That's exactly why <laughs> I put that subtitle. That's great. Dr. Luana, really appreciate it. Uh, before we go, curious, you mentioned you're writing another book. Where can people kind of keep up with you, follow along, learn more, et cetera? So my website is drluana.com. On social, I'm at Dr. Luana Marquez, M-A-R-Q-U-E-S. Um, I'd love to connect with people. All right. We'll be sure to link to that uh, in the show notes and make sure people can find you. So Dr. Luana, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Chris. This is a pleasure. 
A special thank you to this week's guest, Dr. Luana Marcus. The episode was hosted, as always, by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Dr. Luana's book, Bold Move, a three-step plan to transform anxiety into power, is available wherever books are sold. Now the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to us, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.